This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So I'd like to continue the theme that I began this morning, looking at the discourse on the two kinds of thought. And the title of tonight's talk is Intention and the Power of Thought. In the Buddhist day, philosophers and meditators grappled with issues, issues that circled around understandings of causes and effects, What were the causes and effects of our actions? What were the causes and effects of our decisions, of our choices? What was right? What was wrong? One of the Buddha's contemporaries apparently taught that actions themselves create the merit or the demerit, whether or not there was an intention to cause harm. Now this view the Buddha seemed to feel was problematic because simply taking a walk, simply doing the working in the garden, or even just breathing can cause harm to some form of life. So if we're always killing, and if killing is unethical, if killing is harmful, then how can we ever live a pure and wholesome life? How can we ever free the mind of defilements and realize the ultimate peace of release if normal everyday actions of walking and breathing and working cause harm to living beings? Now this issue was raised very explicitly one time when one of the Buddha's, the, the Buddha's disciples, a monk who was blind but considered to be a full arhant, a fully awakened person, He was criticized because he was seen stepping on ants and killing them while he was doing walking meditation. And so the monks reported this to the Buddha and said, how can an arhant kill? And the Buddha explained that there was no fault in this act of killing because his mind was pure and his realization was complete because there was no intention to kill. This act of killing didn't diminish the purity of his realization because the act of killing was without the intention to kill. And this is very significant for the Buddha's teachings because the Buddha located the ethical force in the intentional root of the action, not in the physical action itself. It's the intention that makes an action wholesome or unwholesome. It's the intention that creates the merit and the demerit, not the physical action itself. Now, in ancient India, Brahmin priests held a kind of social responsibility. They had a social role that revolved in a large part around performing various kinds of rituals. And their rituals were believed to protect the fabric of society, that they were um, a force 
that maintained the harmonious order of the world and sustained the integrity of the relations between various realms of existence. It was believed that without their rituals and without those rituals being performed properly and correctly, that the world system would become unbalanced, that evil would triumph over good and storms and famines would destroy life and basically there would be general chaos. And so they developed these careful and precise ritual behaviors and sacrificial customs. Most well-known might be the maintaining of the sacrificial fires, the ritual fires, and the the rituals that are performed at marriages and funerals. And these rituals were believed to actually have an effect. For example, if the the marriage ritual was performed correctly, It was thought to bring prosperity and fertility to the couple. And if there was an error in the performance of the ritual, it was thought to be a a bad sign that would bring um, infertility or misfortune to the couple. Similarly, the funeral rites were thought to have an effect on the rebirth options of the deceased. But the Buddha countered these beliefs with a teaching that basically denied the power of ritual and refocused attention onto the relationship between intention and any action of body, speech, or mind, not just formal ritual actions. So now working with intention, we work with the mind to see how the mental intention leads into an action. And in this understanding, then, thought has an enormous impact on us. In meditation, we look at our thoughts. We look at the quality of the mind. We see the basis of our thoughts. Are they rooted in greed or non-greed, hate or non-hate, delusion or non-delusion? Now, it's true, sometimes as soon as we become mindful that we're thinking, poof, the thought's gone. And we don't need to hang on to it in order to decide, hmm, this one was a thought of non-greed, and this one was a thought of hate. But sometimes thoughts will have an impact on us. They'll be the strong thoughts, or they'll be repeating thoughts, and those are the ones that you'll want to have a deeper understanding around and actually look and consider and ask yourself, what is this coming out of? Is it coming out of greed or non-greed, hate or non-hate? What is it leading to? In meditation practice, we examine how our thoughts function. What did they arise in response to? What sensory impact occurred? What was the train of thoughts that led to that one that we actually became aware of and mindful of? How do we experience our intentions? And do we notice how they link up and support different kinds of actions? In meditation practice, we see what they lead to, we see what they cultivate, we see what they feed and what they perpetuate. For instance, you might have a pattern, for example, of chronic complaining. 
And it's just kind of a habit. You hardly even notice it in daily life. But you start to examine it in your meditation practice and you realize that chronic complaining isn't innocuous. It actually cultivates irritation and anger. It makes us more easily annoyed. And you might also sometimes notice that you have a lot of virtuous thoughts in your mind. Thoughts of generosity, thoughts of enjoying, of, of, of enjoying helping others, thoughts of, of, of valuing service. And those thoughts of virtue, you might notice, bring greater trustworthiness, bring greater, greater faith in the practice, and bring joy to your life. We don't need to be controlled by our conditioning or by our habits or by our fears because the Buddha taught us how to use thoughts skillfully. The Pali term chaitana is usually translated as intention or volition or sometimes purpose or will. Intentions are volitional thoughts that are linked to actions. And they are the topic of the second factor on the Noble Eightfold Path, Samasankapa. These right thoughts or wrong thoughts, right intention or wrong intention, include for the, on the wrong side the intention of sensual desire, the intention of ill will and the intention of cruelty. And on the right side, the intention of renunciation that might manifest as letting go as non-attachment or as the positive act of generosity and giving. The intention of non-ill will, which develops into loving kindness, and the intention of non-cruelty, which matures as compassion. Renunciation and its positive aspects of letting go and generosity have the potential to overcome the forces in the mind that have us holding on, grasping, that keep us addicted to sensual pleasures and personal comforts. Loving kindness serves as a rather obvious antidote to ill will and to aversion. It helps us remove um, resentment and grudges and hatred. Compassion overcomes Cruelty, it overcomes harshness, it overcomes intolerance and aggression. We're probably all familiar with these forms of thought. And at times, sometimes the wholesome versions will be stronger and dominant, and sometimes the unwholesome components will be stronger or more dominant because we don't have just one intention in our lives it's not one thought that lasts throughout the day or one intention that lasts throughout our retreat intention is not one grand overarching force that defines who we are or characterizes our basic nature rather impulses arise moment by moment Intentions occur in each moment of sensory contact, in each moment of cognitive experience. And those intentions, that volitional force, flavors the experience that we're having in that moment and affects the choices that we make out of it. So split second by split second, those intentions are arising. Which ones do we pull out and act on? 
Which ones do we reinforce with our speech and our action? At times, we can pay particular attention to the intention that arises. So we give our attention to the intention. We notice how we apply our minds in a moment of contact. Contact with anything. Maybe you're observing the sensation of a breath. Maybe you're experiencing sound at the ear door as you listened to this talk. Or maybe you're uh, aware of various sensations in the body. Or you're reviewing the various events that have occurred during the day. Can you, in a moment of experience, whether you're experiencing a sensation or you're experiencing a sound or you're experiencing a flavor or you're experiencing an idea, can you, right in that moment, recognize perhaps the feeling, is it pleasant or unpleasant, and the volition, what is the volitional response to that moment? What is your attitude? What is your orientation to that contact? Where is the kind of a... A, a sense of a draw or a push or an inclination. For example, you might be listening right now with a mind that is attentive and mindful. There might be interest, there might be calmness in hearing this Dhamma talk. You might be motivated, you might have the intention to want to understand to want to explore this theme, to want to deepen your practice. But it's also possible to listen to a Dharma talk with a fault-finding attitude, kind of looking for something wrong, something that um, count is, is against your basic beliefs or your own position. And sometimes we can listen with a comparing mind, trying to compare what we hear with various philosophies and other teachers, evaluating and judging what we hear. And sometimes we can just enjoy the Dhamma, delight in the Dhamma, kind of let it fill us with joy and a sense of appreciation and friendliness, just to be sitting on this beautiful spring day in a beautiful place, Comfortable, at ease, listening to Dhamma. Today we've been working with the teachings in the Middle Link Discourses, Sutta number 19, Two Kinds of Thought, where the Buddha described his experience prior to his enlightenment, where he said, As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of sensual desire arose in me. I understood thus, this thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. It leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana. Did anybody have that thought today? Did you recognize, just as the Buddha did, that at some point in the day a thought of sensual desire arose? And you notice, aha! I see it. A thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. I mean, we have to admit it. It happens. And then we have to see where it leads. Oh, this is going to lead to trouble. Trouble for me, trouble for others, and trouble for both. It does not go where I want to go. And when we consider this, 
did it subside? Sometimes it does. Sometimes just that brief recognition, this is what's happening and it ain't what I want. So when we see that, that often pulls, just takes, takes the energy away from it and we're no longer feeding it. And without food, it disappears. So sometimes that's quite enough. Similarly, you might have caught a thought of ill will or a little nasty thought of cruelty. And then we do the same thing. We see that it's arisen. We consider that if we entertained it, what would it produce? It would produce suffering for ourselves and others. And when we see that, then we abandon it. We let it go. We allow it to subside. We recognize that whatever we frequently think and ponder upon, that becomes the inclination of our minds. And when we are thinking and pondering upon thoughts of sensual desire, not only are we cultivating thoughts of sensual desire, but we have neglected, we have abandoned the wholesome thoughts, the right thought of renunciation, of generosity, of letting go, so that we can spend our time cultivating the unwholesome thoughts. I mean, when you see it like that, it's very motivating, isn't it? It's like we, have, we only have one life. How are we going to spend it? And in this moment, we only had that one moment. How, were, how did we choose to spend it? And if we didn't choose to spend it well, we have the next moment to correct it. We at least have the next moment to do something different. And it's the same with ill will and cruelty. Whenever we're entertaining thoughts of ill will, when we're um, uh, nurturing a grudge or or, um, justifying our right to be angry and irritated because somebody did this and they shouldn't have, or when we keep going on and on and on about blame, or when we think that how we could try to get back at somebody in some clever way, We are in those moments abandoning the wholesome intentions and actively cultivating the unwholesome. It seems like it happens on its own, but when we take responsibility for the conditioning of our own mind, we realize that we actually play a part in that conditioning. And when we see that, it can be very empowering to make a different choice. I quite appreciate the cowherd simile. I, I, I like it a lot because um, it, it, it's so clear to me that there are some times when we really have to work with the mind diligently. We have to poke and prod. We have to know that the mind is inclined towards something that's going to cause trouble. And so we're right on top of it. Just like the, the cowherd, when the, cow, when the crops um, are thick, and the cow wants to go in and munch on those crops, he, the cowherd really checks the cow very uh, attentively. And so at those times, we really guard the sense stores. We really guard our mind. We bring mindfulness to every moment of contact when we recognize this is a time when we could very easily slide into trouble. There are times in daily life when I think we have to remember that cow herd. 
times when we, we, where we go into a situation that we know tends to trigger us. You know, maybe it's a family holiday. Or maybe it's a difficult work meeting. Or maybe it's just a difficult work task that you're doing alone, but it tends to trigger thoughts that lead to procrastination or doubt. Maybe it's um, you're meeting with somebody who you, you find very difficult, maybe an old friend, but somebody who you have issues with. Or maybe you're um, on a diet and you're going to meet somebody at a bakery, or you're Getting, or, you're, or you've quit smoking, but you want to sit outside and the smell of other people's smoke at the cafe outside is like triggering craving. Whatever the situation is that you know is hard for you, that you know has a tendency to trigger those kinds of, of, of th- thoughts of um, sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, or thoughts of cruelty, that's, those are the times to in advance almost, then establish the mindfulness. Have the clear intention to check that mindfulness, to bring mindfulness to the sense doors, to really be, let mindfulness be the mind's guard. But there are times when we don't have to be that diligent with our mind. When we see that the mind is it is experiencing thoughts of renunciation and generosity, that the thoughts are of loving kindness and compassion, and that the thoughts are really all wholesome, and that we recognize that what we're cultivating in the mind is a tendency, an inclination towards the wholesome, then we could look at that mind and say, there is nothing to fear here. There's really nothing to worry about. And in fact, many of our thoughts might fall into a category of being not very unwholesome. Maybe just a little bit restless. When we think about it, those might still, they may not be cruel, but they may still feel that they may still have um, a sense of being quite unwholesome because they're rooted in delusion and waste and, and reinforcing restlessness. But sometimes we find the mind going off into very wholesome forms of thinking. Like you're sitting here and you start thinking about the Dhamma and you start thinking about your retreats and you start thinking about your insights and um, you start developing all kinds of creative ideas that are around the Dharma and how you can, how, how you can maximize your experience on the retreat and how you can um, change your life so that it's filled with Dharma from morning till night in all moments. And maybe you'll start writing a book on the Dharma or maybe whatever, you'll, those sorts of thoughts. Now, they aren't thoughts of ill will and cruelty. They're actually thoughts that are not so much a problem. They're wholesome thoughts. They're thoughts circling around the practice and the Dhamma. And we might think that there's nothing to fear from those states. And when we look at the mind and we realize that it's all very wholesome, then it's enough to just be mindful that those states are there. Mindful that there is a, 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 the, the love of the Dhamma. Mindful that there is a desire for more practice. Mindful that there is um, an interest in investigating the mind. 
And so it's likened to the cowherd who just leans back in the, under the shade of a tree and just is mindful that the cows are there. We need only be mindful of those thoughts that are there. And just being mindful of the thoughts, they simply arise and they pass away. They're not fueled, they don't take over our minds, they don't need to build up a lot of conceit. But when we really take responsibility for what is happening in the mind, we'll notice that not only is there the wholesome and the unwholesome, the right intentions and the wrong intentions, but the act of thinking itself can become very habitual. And it can be exhausting. Have you seen just a sequence of rather polite but trivial thoughts floating through your mind? It's nothing to be terribly ashamed about. But is it really what you want to be doing? Is it supporting the deepening of your concentration? Is it supporting the deepening of your insight? Very often the mind is, is occupied by what we might just call deluded distractions, just trivial mind wanderings. And the effect of them is that they are tiresome. We get tired of thinking. Even pleasant thoughts get tiresome after a while. And so the Buddha encouraged calmness, tranquility, to allow yourself to rest, to develop concentration so that we can set aside the preoccupation with thinking and experience a mind that is at ease and at rest. We train ourselves not only to recognize the thoughts, but also to let thoughts go so that we clear the mind and calm those deluded stories that distract our attention. We abandoned all kinds of myriad stories about our lives, whatever they might be. Our preferences, our opinions, the little thoughts, the things that we have done or will do, the little impressions of things that have happened that we think about or our, our plans for the future. We let go of all those things that keep our attention occupied and keep us, that keep us from or prevent us from experiencing deep calmness and concentration that supports liberating insight. As we develop our concentration, as we develop our insight, we will be working with the force of intention because intention is very potent and it's an integral part of the development of both concentration and insight. We learn to direct our intention, and this is part of our meditative skill. Because when our concentration is strong or our mindfulness is refined, then we're not going to need gross effort. Just a thought, an intention, is all that's needed to, to dramatically affect 
the, um, the experience of the meditation. A concentrated mind will respond very precisely to intentions. And it's one of the things that we check in the development of the concentration states of jhana. As we're mastering the absorption states of jhana, we learn to enter and exit these states based upon an intention. So we set an intention for perhaps a certain duration. May I abide in the third jhana for 48 minutes. And then we look. When we pop out, was it 48 minutes? And it's remarkable that it very often is right on the dot or plus or minus a minute or two. Because when the mind is very concentrated, it will respond to our intentions. And then when we're working with the, um, uh, the stages of awakening, perhaps we have had an experience of Nibbana. And then it's quite possible to use our intention to turn the mind, to incline the mind to the experience of Nibbana and experience, a, we could say, a jhana-like state or an, an, a, an, a deep rest, an absorptive rest in this state of peace. But most of us are probably not abiding in jhana or fruition attainments most of the day. And so the place that we usually work with intentions and the way that we really refine them is in our everyday activities. You might consider at the beginning of an action what motivates the action. Any action. Our bodies move all the time. Bodily movement is volitional. There's an intention behind bodily movement. So what was the intention to move? What was that intention serving? Whose interest is it serving? Where does the action lead? What are the consequences likely to be? We might consider, is this movement going to lead to my affliction, to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both? We have to be rather honest with ourselves about the wholesome and unwholesome intentions that arise within our minds, especially if we seek enlightenment. Because there's no point in pretending that we are more virtuous than we are. It may sound like um, thoughts of sensual desire, ill will, and cruelty are really bad. Well, they're unwholesome, but we might find light forms of them, or we might find periodic intense forms of them. And whenever we find them, I think we have to face them very squarely and seeing the negative that exists as well as the beautiful that occurs within our minds. We have to recognize the agitation and conceit that can sometimes be interwoven even in an action that looks good from the outside. Maybe we're doing a virtuous act, but we're puffed up with internal pride hoping to be seen doing that virtuous act. Or maybe there's a lot of, um, uh, there's an act of generosity, but there's also a kind of arrogance around it. Or maybe we're doing a compassionate service, but we know that it's motivated in part by guilt. When we're present with our experience from the intention right through to the actions, then we will understand what is happening 
and how thoughts lead into actions. That whole process will be transparent to us. We'll have confidence in the actions that we take because we will be able to discern and see very clearly the motivations behind it. No one wants to think of themselves as being a cruel, greedy, or um, selfish person. But sometimes these forces are underneath other experiences, experiences of anxiety or envy, of resentment or of blame. It's not uncommon to find normal social conversations in one way or another circling around anxiety, envy, resentment, blame, or the uh, assertion of views and opinions. It doesn't seem like it's a sociopathic, um, those are sociopathic qualities. They're probably fairly normal in society, but they're not the states that will lead us to Nibbana. They're not the states that we want to have flourish within our own minds. The Dhamma shows us the way to uproot these unwholesome states and to realize a complete liberation, a liberation from all greed, all hate, and all delusion and confusion. The path that the Buddha taught is more is about more than purifying our conduct. It's about more than being a good person. The Dhamma path develops a profound depth of inner peace and a sublime experience of happiness and trustworthiness. Ajahn Buddha Dasa said, we don't have to do anything very much to make ourselves happy. We don't have to go to any great trouble. All we have to do is empty our minds of greed, aversion, and delusion. Or in other words, to make it empty of grasping at and clinging to I and mine. When the mind is empty of greed, aversion, and delusion, then it's truly empty, and all dukkha comes to an end. Even kama will of itself come to an end. We have the potential to uproot greed, hate, and delusion. This is not an impossible project. However, most people have a lot of unexamined reasons for doing the things that reinforce the opposites, reinforce the defilements. And so in a mindfulness-based liberation practice, we examine our inner intentions regarding our physical actions, our verbal actions, and our mental actions, the things we choose to repeatedly think. And we might start with very simple, ordinary actions. At the beginning of a sitting, for example, I think it can be very helpful to reflect upon your intention. Do you have a clear intention for your practice? If not, you might take a few moments to formulate it into a sentence. It could be as simple and as general as may my practice be of benefit to myself and others. Or may this practice lead to liberation 
or the ending of greed, hate, and delusion, or the deepening of peace and wisdom. When you wake up in the morning, before you get out of bed, you might want to establish an intention for the day. It might be to reflect upon this um, commitment that you have in your spiritual life so that all the actions of your day are aligned with a noble purpose, a noble aim. Or it might be a more particular a commitment on retreat. Sometimes it can be interesting to say, okay, today I'm going to work with intention before movement. Or today I'm going to stop every time I notice a thought of aversion or ill will. No matter where I am, I'm going to just stop and I'm going to notice it. And I'm not going to take a step, I'm not going to take a movement until that thought has passed. See if you can get out of your room in the morning. (laughs) In um, daily life, I think it's really helpful to tune into our intentions at various points. Um, if you if you um, get on your bike or get on your car or 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 walk to work or back home or to the store, um, in those transitions before you enter the house, before you enter the shop, before you turn on the car, let your mind recognize what the intention is. Sometimes we're rushing on to the next thing and it can be very helpful to just pause and establish the mind in the intention of loving kindness, for example. You know, whatever occurs, let the mind not go into ill will. Let me meet whatever occurs with the mind of goodwill. In meditation, we can really pay attention to the intention before we move. Just because the bell rings doesn't mean it's time to jump up. Notice the intention before you open your eyes. Notice the intention before you move your hands. Notice how you get from the sitting to the standing posture. What part of your body moves first, do you notice? Does your head move first? Does your eyes move? Do your eyes move first? Do your hands move? Does your legs move? You've gotten up and down many, many times. What part moves first? If you don't know, notice. Notice the next times you move. Sometimes we have an itch or we want to change our posture or or move our shawl. Well, notice the intention. It's not that you have to stay stiff as a board during meditation. If you want to shift, I don't see that there's any reason not to make mindful, wise movements as they are needed. But I I would suggest not moving on the first impulse. If there's a desire to take off the shawl or put on the shawl, let the impulse arise and see the impulse and recognize that it's a thought and it can come and go. And then if it comes again, notice it again. And then maybe the third time, actually take the action and then mindfully feel yourself move to accomplish that task. When you're out um, doing walking meditation, notice the intention to stop, the intention to turn, the intention to lift the foot. If your head turns, 
Notice what happened when your head turned. Did you hear a bird? Did you see something? What was the stimulus and what was the intention that caused this movement of the head to go look at something? Every action has some intentional component that we can tune into. And so this can be part of our mindfulness practice to highlight the component of intention, to watch the about-to-move impulse, that about-to moment. And see what happens if we inhibit that, if we don't do it, about-to-move and then don't. Then what happens? We can just drop right back into mindful awareness. Experience this mind-body experience without feeling compelled to act upon our intentions, without feeling like just because a thought arose that we have to turn it into an action. We learn to stop. We learn to pause. We learn that it is a separate movement to speak or to act upon an intention. And just because the intention arose doesn't mean we have to follow through with that action. And so we learn to pause. Maybe there's a a desire to say something nasty to a friend when you're back home. And you, oh, you catch that impulse. (laughs) And you stop. Bite your tongue if you have to. Stop. You spare yourself and your friend a lot of suffering and a lot of apologies. When does the mind wander into distraction? What were your thoughts when you were showering today? What were your thoughts when you were combing your hair today? Did you notice them? When you were putting on your shoes or taking off your shoes to enter this room, what was the thought? What was the intention? Was it wholesome or unwholesome? Do you remember? Did you notice? There's so many places in the day that we can focus in on this aspect of intention as a very rudimentary form of thought, as an impulse toward. And then we can see what gets elaborated out of it. Very often the wandering mind are kind of uh, ways that the mind just sort of entertains itself, keeps itself busy, reconceives of itself, passes the time so that we're not bored, keeps us at a superficial level of experience so that we don't really have to be mindful, so that we don't really have to be clear about what's actually occurring. I think it's important to look at the distracted tendencies of mind, to examine what we get out of it. What's the gratification? What's the perceived reward for being distracted? Are there dangers? Are there disadvantages to being distracted? What's the price that you're paying for the wandering mind? What harm does that wandering habit cause? 
What resource does it waste? What opportunities are lost? If we want to live with love and wisdom, we can't neglect self-examination because whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of our mind. So right intention is a profoundly wholesome form of thought. And it's an essential element of the Noble Eightfold Path. When there's right intention, we'll find that it is always in conjunction with right view, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And that it leads to right action, right speech, and right livelihood. So as we develop the Eightfold Path and focus in on right intention as one factor, we are actually developing the supporting conditions for the entire path. We have the whole Noble Eightfold Path there, informed by right intention. And when our intentions are clear, we'll develop a deep confidence, not only in our own path, in the unfolding of our path, but in our trustworthiness and the trustworthiness of the path. Clear intentions will allow us to stand strong on our own two feet when we're in conversations, when we're in interactions, when we're in silence or when we're in solitude. We'll be able to trust. When we can trust our intentions, we will trust the actions that come out of those intentions and we will be free from remorse free from worry, and free from regret. So notice, in meditation and in activities, what is your intention? And what are your thoughts cultivating? Let your actions, the actions of body, the actions of speech, and also the mental actions spring from intentions that are good, intentions that are right. Let them spring from love. Let them spring from wisdom. 